to hear from you as you speak to us and through us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and know that you've heard us. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. I hope uh, no matter how your Sunday morning started, whether it was easy or full of stress, that after being able to come together and worship our God who is alive, uh, that you can very proudly say that it is a good morning. Um, if you'll turn with me uh, to in your bulletin, uh, we've come to our time of our prayer focus this morning. Um, I forgot to mention also, I'm Scott Shambly, uh, one of the deacons here, uh, as well as one of the home group leaders uh, here at Grace. Uh, I always love the fact that uh, God includes us in his kingdom, uh, that he does not need us but allows us to take part. Uh, and I love that a small church in Harnett County uh, gets to take part uh, in God's worldwide mission. Uh, and so if you did not know, uh, there's a few ways that we do that here at Grace, uh, one of which is we as a body financially support a number of missionaries uh, around the world. We also, uh, as home groups, uh, seek to connect and support uh, whether through care packages, through keeping in touch uh, with specific uh, missionaries that we sponsor as well. And that is why I find myself up here on stage this morning. Uh, my home group, uh, we support the Flythe family. Uh, Trip and Heather Flythe uh, serve with Mission, uh, Mission Aviation Fellowship, uh, MAF, in Indonesia. Uh, Trip is a pilot, uh, and when and however he is needed, uh, is able to fly uh, locals as well as others in and out uh, as necessary for medical reasons uh, and others. Uh, they serve not only as a couple, but they have three of their children there as well. And uh, I know from trying to raise two kids in this area, it's got to be tricky to raise three somewhere across the world. Uh, but on top of that, not only do they have three, they have just uh, completed adopting their fourth, uh, a little girl from China, I believe Harper, uh, uh, their new daughter that is joining their family. Um, I'm told they're currently in the States, uh, but will be traveling back. So I uh, would encourage you to be in prayer uh, with me, with us, for the Flythe family. Uh, if you don't know what they look like, they are on our mission wall right out here in the lobby in the bottom right-hand corner. We'll have to update a picture since their family is growing. Um, but also you can connect with them through our website. Uh, they have a blog that they update uh, and you can find out more information about their mission there in Indonesia. Um, also, please make sure you take time throughout the week to note uh, the other prayer requests below. Uh, always be in prayer for the body, this family that we are. Uh, a good report, Debbie Nelson uh, had surgery this past week, which was very successful. Uh, and she is recovering uh, and doing very well. So I know she appreciates all the prayers. Uh, to this point, we continue to pray for her as well as for these others. Um, I'm just going to lead us in prayer this morning. If you will join with me uh, and, again, take these prayer requests out during the week. Uh, so let's pray. Father, we do uh, come again and thank you for the opportunity uh, to share with you uh, in building your kingdom and the spreading of your word. Uh, and, Father, though we ourselves may not leave uh, Hornet County or may not go halfway across the world. I thank you that we can take part uh, with others in uh, supporting them both financially, uh, supporting them in uh, sending them encouraging words through letters, emails, uh, and also, uh, and very importantly, Father, being in prayer for them. We pray for Tripp and Heather uh, as they continue to serve uh, you with this special gift that you've given them, being a pilot. Uh, we pray for them as they seek to uh, spread your word, your love, uh, and follow and to also uh, raise uh, their three, now four children uh, while they do this mission as well. Uh, Father, we just pray that you would continue to give them uh, in energy, uh, excitement uh, as they seek to do your work, uh, Father, knowing that they could do none of it on their own, uh, but only if they wholly rely on you. Uh, Father, so we just pray for them, uh, pray your blessing. Uh, over their travels uh, as they're here now and will return shortly uh, and just pray that you continue to give them the strength uh, to serve you 
that you might receive all the glory. Uh, and Father, now we come to a time when we are, uh, get to participate as well by giving of the gifts that you have so uh, freely given to us. Uh, Father, I just pray your blessing over this offering, Father, that we bring. Uh, none of this is ours. It's all yours. Uh, Father, we just pray that you would do uh, your work uh, with these gifts that we bring. That's all we ask in your name. Amen which Jesus used. Nearly every verse has multiple allusions to both the Old Testament and to other Jewish apocalyptic literature. And because of the nature of prophecy itself, multiple fulfillments culminating in a final fulfillment. Close quote. In his book, The Creedal Imperative, Carl Truman argues that Christian theology always has a certain ineradicable complexity. And I know that many of you were speaking about that very topic on the way to church this morning. You know, when you think about the ineradicable complexity of Christian theology, it just blows your mind, right? Uh, Actually, what Mr. Truman is saying is that some aspects of God's truth Cannot, it is impossible to reduce them to simplistic explanations or even simple explanations. Difference between simple and simplistic. But you can't even make some of Scripture simple. It's, it's complex. Have you not found that? If, it, if you've got it all figured out, I got bad news for you. You don't have it all figured out. It's just difficult. With regard to Jesus' second coming, you may not be aware of this, but there are a lot of different opinions about what Jesus meant when he gave his famous prophetic lesson. I mean, you may only be aware of one basic understanding of the end times, which is that there's going to be a rapture of the church. Church is going to be taken out of here. Seven years tribulation. At the end of that tribulation, there's going to be a massive battle, the battle of Armageddon. Jesus is going to return. We're going to return with him on horses. There were a couple at TVR during my years that won't make the cut on that for sure. But we're coming back on horses. There's this big battle, but it's over. As soon as Jesus speaks the word of his mouth, the armies are slain. He sets up a thousand-year millennium. And at the end of that millennium, Satan is loose for a little bit. And there's the total uh, demolishment of Satan and his followers. There's the great white throne judgment and the new heavens and the new earth begin. Are you aware that this belief like that has only been held actually less than 200 years? In all of church history, we've only been believing like this for less than 200 years. Now, in America, probably a good majority of believers would say, yes, this is what I believe about the Lord's return. Worldwide, we make up less than half, well less than half of those who are believers in Jesus Christ and who know that Jesus is coming again. Uh, If you were like me, you were taught from the earliest years as a believer that to believe other than the rapture, tribulation, millennium was tantamount to saying that you don't believe that the Bible is true. Now, hearing me say that, don't worry. I am not going to make a case against tribulation, millennium. But I'm not going to make a case for it either. Here's why. And and, and by the way, I have no idea. That's why I say two to four weeks. I have no idea where we're going. I've I've wrestled with this message more than anyone since I've been here. Any message, to my knowledge, I might say that three weeks from now. But, you know, you just got to put up with that. But I, I can't tell you. Allison will tell you how much I have wrestled with that. She would if she weren't playing grandmother. By the way, our ninth grandbaby came yesterday. Beautiful little girl, Bailey Ann Tally. So we'll probably make a way to see her in the not-too-distant future. Uh, And now I forgot exactly where I am. (laughs) Um, Talking about rest. So I'm not exactly sure where we're going. Here's the reason. Uh, that I say, though, I, I'm, I'm not going to make a case one way or the other. Clearly, 
I'm a little uncertain about it. I'm not sure what I believe. I've always believed tribulation, you know, all of that, and just praying that the rapture is before the tribulation instead of midway or at the end. Um, but, but also, in our Grace Connection class, if you've been in there the last few years, you, you may recall a discussion about the need to hold some of the doctrines that we believe just like this with a closed fist and some with an open hand. A lot of people make end times beliefs in Scripture a closed fist, but it's not. There are some things worth dying for and some things not worth dying for. Belief in the Trinity, that's worth dying for. Belief in spiritual gifts about whether tongues are valid for today and how they should be used, that kind of thing, it's not worth dying for. Now, we have positions here at church, and we practice a particular way, but we're not going to die on that. Believing that grace, salvation is by grace through faith, that's worth dying for. Believing that there's going to be a seven-year tribulation and that we're going to be raptured at some point and there's going to be a thousand-year reign, that's not worth dying for. That's not to say that your specific belief about the end times is not very important to you. Not only is it important to you, it absolutely should be. In fact, what you believe about Jesus' second coming is of crucial importance in your life and... and, and, then secondarily to all the people around you. If you're not careful, though, you'll begin to focus on details that in an odd way obscure the very things that God wants you to understand about the second coming. This morning, we will content ourselves. I I shouldn't drag you into that state of contentment. You might be very discontented at the moment but I am going to content myself with an overview of Mark 13 then in the next few weeks we're going to look at this in greater detail I'm not sure uh, whether it's going to be like I say two to four weeks Uh, this morning I'm going to read the entire chapter of Mark 13 and since I'm going to be going slowly I'll ask you to just stay seated Uh, but before we read Mark 13 I want to give an outline Uh, of a few principles that will guide our study of of this chapter over the next few weeks. We'll look at these points before we read the text. We're going to look at them again afterwards. You don't have to write them down now. Uh, I just want you to be aware of these before we read and, and, and think about them as we go. First, many of the Old Testament promises and prophecies concerning Israel were fulfilled and completed in Jesus. We've we've been talking about that talk about it a great, uh, in, in, in a great deal more detail in home groups, and, and I've made a way, if you're not in a home group, to, to pursue that study as well. Second, we have been living in the last days since the time of Christ, so it's always been appropriate. We'll look at Scripture for that. It's always been appropriate to say, Jesus is coming any day. It's always been appropriate. Three, the certainty of Jesus' return in the future should profoundly impact the way that we live today. Let's look at our text, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, now do you remember the context for this? A lot of arguing going on. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? I'm so tempted to just stop along the way and say, okay, well, let's think. But we'll be getting to this. So don't don't be frustrated if you walk away today and all of your questions are not addressed. I'm not going to say answered, but at least addressed. Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. 
And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sakes to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak But the Holy Spirit, that is a great comfort, isn't it? Holy Spirit will tell us what to say when we stand before people who have accused us. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end (coughs) will be saved. That's not quite as exciting a promise or prophecy. Is it? But when you see, I have to take a drink of water before I say it. The abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation and has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And when they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things shall take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Aren't there just so many places we could just stop and say, wonder what that means? I mean, that's one of them, isn't it? Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Do you remember earlier in Mark, way back here in chapter 4, I think it is, 4 or 5, he's talking about the parables. The, the operative word is here, here, here. In this text, the operative word is watch. 
Verse 34, it is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we want to be found as those who are anticipating your return. I pray that you would burn these difficult and yet enormously important words into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be a good idea to keep Mark 13 open uh, <clears throat> where you are because it's not going to be on the screen again. One of the most important principles of Bible study is context. We, we talk about that all the, all the time. Just like real estate, you, you want to know location, location, location. In Bible study, it's context, context, context. Everything revolves around that context. And, and, and before you do anything else, you need to understand who is writing this book when are they writing the book? To whom is it written? What's the? Then you can begin to, to think about the purpose. And the purpose of the author is obviously what God intended for the people of, who were receiving that letter would understand. Now, now think about this in connection with Genesis. You remember in Genesis when, when, when everybody is saying, okay, what's it going to be? Six-day creation, young earth, old earth, what's it going to be? And, and, and we, we had to stop and say, wait a minute, who were the first people to hear this? It, it was the Israelites who were coming out of Egypt. And they had watched their God defeat God after God after God in the Egyptian pantheon. Ten gods their God had defeated. And they were saying, and they'd walked through the Red Sea and they're like, who is this God? Moses said, let me tell you about this God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he started telling the story. So then you begin to understand why was this written. And now, all of a sudden, we're not focused as much on the little things. We're seeing what the big picture is. Same thing when we come to Mark 13. We have to understand what was the context of this teaching and the context begins as Jesus is walking out of the temple probably fairly angry it's a righteous anger it's not the way we'd be walking out angry you know but it's it's a righteous anger and he has just called the religious leaders every name in the book you a bunch of snakes you whitewashed tombs you're this that and the other because they had completely messed up God's system that intended, it was intended to point people to him. Instead, they were pointing everybody to themselves. And so Jesus had pretty much said the temple system as it is constituted is done. But there was more to it than that as we'll see in the next few weeks. But on the way out, the disciples are just trying to calm Jesus down. You know, he's pronounced judgment on the temple indirectly, but people are understanding and, and they're saying, Jesus, Jesus, look, look at these stones. Look how impressive, don't you think so? How impressive was the temple? Listen to this from Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who wrote about what he saw. And let me just say this too. About Josephus, because this is going to be important in the coming weeks. Um, there was a, a sense amongst historians that Josephus was given to exaggeration. Um, the, the first time I was in Israel, there was a lady who was our guide who said, uh, If you want to know about Israel, there are two books I would recommend. And I would, to this day, I would say the same thing. O Jerusalem, which is 
a factual account that after the first three chapters reads like a novel of the 1948 war when Israel became a nation uh, again. And then The Source by James Michener who gives a fictional account of the history of the Jews. And I mean, it's, it is stunningly good. You cannot believe what you will learn in that book. Have you read that book, David? David Webb, not yet. He will, though. I can promise you that. This, this man is a... Start to say a reading fool. Let's just say a reader. He's a, he's a reader. He's a good reader. Um, <clears throat> but in this book, The Source, Josephus is painted as one who stirs up the Jews to riot uh, against and to rebel against Rome. And then, it's just about time the Jews are going to, I mean, the Romans are going to destroy a city. He gets out, sneaks out, goes to the next city, stirs it up there, and at some point he realizes the cause is lost, and he says, well, somebody ought to write about this, and offered his services to the Romans. So, I read these two books in the year between my visits to Israel, and so I, when I went back... I asked my, the guide for the second year about this. I said, is this true about Josephus? He said, yeah, pretty much. And then he said, you know, it's really interesting. Everybody thought that Josephus exaggerated ridiculously at ridiculously high levels, but all of the archaeological discoveries are pretty much confirming everything he said. Now, that's going to be important, not only for this quote that I'm about to to read from Josephus, but also in the coming weeks. So here's what he said about the temple. The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white." Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, 5 in height, and 6 in breadth. Close quote. Now, put that, to put that in terms that we can understand, some of the stones were as large as railroad boxcars. We heard a couple of weeks ago, three times as large as any of the stones in the pyramids. This was a spectacular spectacular building. And so when the disciples said, Jesus, isn't this impressive? They were also saying, doesn't this indicate God's love for his people? Doesn't this indicate our security? And Jesus simply replied, there won't be one stone left on another. Why would God allow this house to be destroyed. This house in which he had chosen to dwell to ensure his people that he was with them. The Psalms tell us that the heavens can't contain God, much less a house, and yet God chose to dwell first in the tabernacle, then in the temple, the Shekinah glory of God in that holy of holies that the, that the high priest one time a year would go into. God dwelt there. Why would he allow this house to be destroyed? In addition to his displeasure with the system that the religious leaders had put, put in place that pointed not to God but to man, The short answer is that God's plan was this all along. He had, according to Hebrews, planned to do away with this sacrificial structure. This thing, all of this pointed to Jesus anyway. And as the writer of Hebrews said, we knew, we just knew that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. We had to come year after year after year. So when Jesus died, his sacrifice... For sin, put an end to all sacrifices. So, one of the reasons the temple would be destroyed is so that not only would this sacrificial system 
not be looked to as, as relationship with God, but all the regulations and barriers separating God and man will be broken down in Jesus, who is the temple of God. You remember the very first thing that happened after Jesus said, it is finished, into your hands I commit my spirit. The veil of the temple that separated God from man, essentially, was torn in two from top to bottom. That's not the way things usually unravel, is it? From top to bottom. This week, for those home groups that are meeting, you're going to see how Jesus fulfilled many of the Old Testament prophecies and promises made to Israel and how much of the symbolism of the law pointed to Jesus. But that shouldn't be a surprise since we know that Jesus is the central figure of Scripture. Everything points to Him. I I know a lot of you are not meeting, so I've already put an attachment on the city that's pretty much the home group notes. And by the way, I didn't give explanation for this, but John 1.14 says, "The The Word became, it's talking about Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. That word dwell means literally to live as a tabernacle. He tabernacled with us. In the same way that God met his people in the tabernacle, in the same way that he met his people in the temple, now he meets his people through Jesus. Um, So, there's ample scripture to show us that Jesus is the temple and that he lives within the members of the church, also known as the temple of the Holy Spirit. You'll also see how that Jesus fulfills the feast. He is the, the completion and the fulfillment of the feast. The Passover, of course, is wrapped up in imagery of the cross. The feast of tabernacles or booths is laden with symbolism that pointed to Jesus, the living water. I wanted to spend time in John 7. Won't do that just because of time but when Jesus stands up and says I am the living water for if you believe on me rivers of living water will flow from you there is so much symbolism about the feast at the end of that feast it was the highlight of the feast the priest would pour out this water and it would run down and they would talk about the waters from God and Jesus said that's me it's all pointing to me either Jesus with God or he was Completely wacko. Completely. And he's saying, all of the Old Testament was pointing to me. And by the way, think about this when we think about the second coming. How many people were confused about God's first coming, the first time Jesus came? Pretty much everybody. The second coming is not as easy as we think. But you know what? There were people that didn't understand it, but they said, I I know you, (laughs) you are from God. And I believe everything you say, and it makes no sense when you claim to be God, but I believe it. (sighs) In addition to Jesus fulfilling all the feast, he is our Sabbath rest. Pretty soon we're going to celebrate Independence Day in our nation. And by the way, I recognize when I had you stand up, those of you who served the military in the last few weeks on Memorial Day, we weren't celebrating your death. You're here. and But we just like to just say thank you to people who have served in our military, and that's a good opportunity to do so. And when it comes to Independence Day, we'll probably think about it again, just saying thank you for those of you who have served. And look... Symbols of our independence are going to be everywhere. I mean, American flags are going to be flying. Fireworks are going to be exploding. Bells ringing. Patriotic songs filling the air. While we eat hamburgers, hot dogs, and ice cream. You know, that's pretty much the American fare. And I wish they had made steak and lobster the deal. You know, for 4th of July. So, there are things that, certain things that we identify with as... American. At the top of the list of identity markers for the Jews were both the temple where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt and the observance of the Sabbath. But Jesus claimed that he ought to be worshipped, thus making himself God. He also claimed to be 
the Lord of the Sabbath, thus making himself to be God. He attacked in the minds of, uh, of the religious leaders everything sacred, everything Jewish. Jesus was a threat to that civilization, to that race of people. Look, if you didn't believe he was exactly who he said he was, you would have been with the religious leaders on this. You would have said he's a threat. Either he was who he said he was or he wasn't. And he said, I'm the temple. Destroy this temple. I will raise it up again in three days. He said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I am living water. And then he said in private to his disciples, I am the true vine in John 15. The leaders would have been absolutely incensed if he had said that. I am, if they had heard him say that, I am the true vine. My father is the tender of the vine. Anyone who wants to be connected with the father must be connected with me. You're not connected with me. You have no life. And the branches that are dead, that are not connected, will be, will be gathered together and thrown into the fire. What would have been particularly difficult for the leaders when Jesus made such a claim? Well, it's because the Old Testament equated God's vine with the promised land. So now Jesus claims to be the true vine. He he may as well have said all promises that God Gave to Israel are fulfilled and completed in me. Don't look to this land as the assurance of God's blessing. Don't look to this house as the assurance of God's blessings. Don't look to your observance of these these, um, rituals that have been set in place. As as assurance that you are properly connected with God. Look to me. Now to put that in context. How would you feel if someone said. Look. It's not this land that makes you American. Don't worry about this land. Don't worry about all those monuments in Washington, D.C. What is the big deal about the World Trade Center going down? I mean, okay, I know there were people in there, but as far as the symbol, one, just don't worry about those. I am the one who makes you American. Well, actually, we, we might have heard that, you know, in, 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 at different times, but in, in our history. That's crazy, we would think. That's what the Jews are thinking. Frankly, we don't have half, not half, the national pride that the Jews of Jesus' day had. And Jesus was not only saying that he was the fulfillment of what it meant to be Jewish, to be one of God's chosen people, (coughs) but in fact... Jesus was making the claim that people from all nations would find life in him. And the Jews didn't like that. Because in order to be related to God up until this point, you had to become a Jew and worship in the synagogue. And even then, you were still second-class citizen. Now Jesus is saying, all the barriers are going to be broken down. All people are going To know God through me. So how does all of this matter when we're studying scripture that is laced with eschatological implications, end time implications? We're going to be talking about that in these coming weeks. But it's significant that Jesus begins his talk about the end times with a prophecy that removes the temple as a significant component for God's people. The second truth we need to keep in mind as we study Mark 13 is simply this. We've been living in the last time since the time of Christ, since the time of Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 points this out quite clearly, clearly while at the same time preparing people for, for all that's going to be said in that book about Jesus meeting all of the requirements that had been previously met in the temple. <clears throat> Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, without going into great detail and explanation, he's essentially saying he's the same as God. He is God when he says that. Don't put your um, English thinking to this saying, oh, he's like a print. It's not the real thing. It's like a copy. No, no, no. He is the exact imprint of it. He has the same nature as God is what he's saying. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews was written somewhere around A.D. 60 to 65. And he said, the writer said, we're in the last days. First John was written around A.D. 90. Well, the apostle said this, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrist have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. First John wasn't written nearly as early as Hebrews was. It was written as late as A.D. 90, 92, 3, somewhere along in there. So, look, the point is, We've been living in the last days since Jesus and everybody has been looking as they should have been for Jesus. John goes so far as to say many antichrists have come, already come. Now again, that shouldn't surprise us. That language shouldn't throw us. Anyone who claims to be Jesus, anyone who claims to be the Messiah other than Jesus is the antichrist, is an antichrist. Have we seen a few of those around? Look, there are some that seem like they have orthodox theology that get very close to that until they crumble and fall. Is it wrong for us to tell people that we are living in the last days and to look out for the Antichrist and to be prepared for Jesus' return? No, of course not. We are living in the last days. God has no further word about Jesus since Jesus. Nothing will prevent his return. And it's been that way ever since Pentecost. What kind of people should we be in light of Jesus' return? Watchful people who live as though the Lord will return at any moment. We're going to talk a good bit more about this particular point in the coming weeks. But know that the things that we think about, the things and the people that we talk about, the activities we participate in, the grudges we hold, for the, or the forgiveness that we extend, all indicate whether or not we believe that the Lord will return imminently. It indicates what we believe about standing before the Lord in judgment. Now look, this is not, I am not advocating a works-oriented approach to God. None of our, not our salvation, not our sanctification, certainly not our justification, not our, nothing is about works. It's all about the grace of God. And, and, and as we talked about last week, everything we do, even our giving, is in response to God's grace in our lives. All of that is true. But if we really believe that he's going to come back and we must give an account of ourselves, we're going to cling on to God's grace more than we ever have. And it's going to change the way we live. That's not judging when I say that that all the things that you do indicate whether you believe or not, I'm just going to guess you have as difficult a time as I do and as much struggle as I do to live and love and forgive like Jesus did. Once again, the Apostle John in his first letter said this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. What a phenomenal claim. The reason why the world does not know us 
is it that it did not know him? Now, now I said a while ago, people th- thought Jesus was, was stark raving mad. If, if you follow Jesus, guess what? People are going to think you're stark raving mad. Somebody is. If nobody thinks you're a fanatic, there's, I just, I, I don't see how you can be walking with Christ as we're called to walk. Does that, do we run to that trouble? Do we say, hey, no, it's trouble finds you. That's all, you, that's all you have to, just just walk with Jesus. And if you're like him, people are going to treat you the way they treated him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. You know what would be a great thing? Just to sometime this week, look at these three verses and just soak in them one at a time. Just sit down and look at the first verse and just just let the Spirit of God burn that truth on your heart. I'm like Jesus, and that means it's going to be hard. And then that second verse, the glory that's going to be revealed, that's that's why we can say, we can sing rejoice in suffering. Because... In that odd way in Scripture, suffering and glory are almost always connected. Our suffering, God's glory. How does that benefit me? In ways you cannot imagine if you suffer well. And when He appears, you will be like Him because you will see Him as He is. Anybody here sick of the the man or woman you see in the mirror every day? I'm not talking about when your spouse is standing next to you. I'm talking about, you know, when it's you, just you and you alone. That day is going to be done. And then verse 3, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. As he is pure. Wow, that ought to be our prayer. Let, let, let's read this one more time. And. And just read it as a prayer. If you want to, just close your eyes and listen to these words. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him. Purifies himself. As he is pure. Father. We recognize that apart from Jesus' perfect life, apart from this true and better Adam that we sang about this morning, apart from His willingness as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, to submit to your plan, Father, and for Jesus to go to the cross without that, him dying in our place, we have no hope for, for, for life. We have no hope for the being purified from our sins. Knowing what Jesus did when he came the first time as a suffering lamb, ought to fill our hearts at such levels that we are ready when he comes back as the Lion of Judah to judge 
the dead and the living. Lord, make us like Jesus. We recognize that such a prayer is often a request for hard times. Make us like Jesus. We have no business being called the children of God, but you have blessed us in that way. And Lord, if there are those here who have been hoping that they could be good enough for you to say, you're pretty good, I'll accept you. May they know in their deepest, in the deepest places of their heart that their sin separates them from you, but that you made provision in Christ for life. And as we repent of our sin, acknowledging that we are sinners hopelessly apart from you, and as we believe that Jesus died for us and we're saved, Lord, we anticipate your return. May we not allow ourselves to bicker about exactly how it's going to be before you return. But Father, may we as one body anticipate that Jesus will come. Even so, come quickly, Lord. How good it would be if we wouldn't even make it out of this room before Jesus is here. Be alert. Stay awake. In anticipation of Jesus' return. And as Brad said, be like Jesus. So, how do we do that? I'm going to take this to uh, Thessalonians and Paul's letter. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Share the gospel this week.